Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist and a nutritionist and a bodybuilder. Hey, folks. Rob Fortress-Fortney. I'm a former editor at MuscleMag International, former competitive bodybuilder and powerlifter. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a Highland Games athlete and powerlifter and founder of StrengthGuildLipperHope.org. Sweet. Rob, you got some news, don't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strength and Muscle Sport News. A couple things. First of all, I want to read a couple, well... Uh, Basically, we got a couple good letters here. One from a, a listener, Joe Precop, who, uh, Lonnie, you'd be interested in knowing. He took some pictures back of, uh, uh, Dave Jacoby, which was, is one of the legendary 242 pounders and powerlifting oh, that used mm-hmm. to train, actually. Well, it still does train at Pep's Gym, mm-hmm. um, our old haunt there in, uh, you know, Akron, Ohio. Um, and he, he took a couple pictures of him way back in the day. He sent me a couple of them. Very cool. Anyway, Joe is 67. Uh, he's been listening for six or seven months. Says we rock, provide solid research and experience-based advice that is second to none. Woo! Woohoo! Anyway, yeah, so I respond to him and, uh, thank you very much, Joe, for your letter and thanks for sending those two, uh, photos. I'll actually forward those off to Phil and, uh, Lonnie so they can see them too. Yeah, of, that'd be uh, cool. Of, um, Dave Jacoby, which again is, uh, one of the all-time 242 best lifter kind of dudes. Anyway. Right, uh, world so champion. Not yeah, just American, but yeah, oh my, world champion. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, Joe Precop, I hope I'm saying that right. Thank you very much. Keep listening, and uh, we're glad to have you aboard. The other one that I wanted to, um, is from Scott, and he was just saying he looks forward to it every week. He's listened to all the back episodes. The show is great. Um, despite extensive searching on his part, Iron Radio is the only strength podcast I can count on to be worth my time. Keep it up. Excellent work. So, And he sent us a bunch of uh, um, ideas for guests on the show. Um, Oh, I, yeah, I saw that. That was a lot of grip. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. There was, grip there was athletes. A, a bit of that in there. So anyway, uh, yeah, Scott, thank you yeah. very much as well, and we enjoy hearing from you. So the only other thing I want to bring up is just something I just, <laughs> I just saw, um, which is a new bodybuilding mouthpiece that's being sold from uh, Bite Tech or something like that for twenty nine ninety nine. Anyway, it's being endorsed by uh, Mr. Olympia or former Mr. Olympia Jay Cutler. And I just wanted to read you a quote. This is apparently from Mr. Cutler himself. I came to realize that a mouthpiece is a necessity in training. I've always been concerned about grinding and clenching my teeth in, in training sessions. I found the Armor Bite mouthpiece and realized it also has the benefit of improving strength and lowering cortisol. And they're, they're really trumping this thing up um, towards that latter point about lowering cortisol. And I was talking to Lonnie about this right before the show, and you said, Lonnie, that you've read some information that that might or might not be true. Uh, it's, it, I think there's, I'm almost certain, I could actually look here, that there is a paper out there suggesting lower uh, cortisol. But, of course, I think the biggest advantage 
what we discussed a few weeks ago when when Dr. Bill Eben was on the show about how it sort of you know activates the motor cortex in some way or right. you know, activates neural function and you get. Well, I've actually the, read things about that specifically. Yeah, yeah that's why in uh, the, the thread that this was started and that was my quote. I could say I said that I could certainly see a strength act, uh, athlete using it towards that end, but the whole idea of some generalized weight trainer using it for some <laughs> lowering of cortisol levels. Um, and, and I want to read a funny quote in the thread um, in which this whole thing appeared. And I'm not going to attribute this to anybody. Uh, it's a member on the specific board. And I'm not going to say anything else but exactly what this guy, what this guy's comment was. He says, I guess uh, 8 grams of hormones a week with 20 IUs of GHD isn't lowering cortisol enough. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, I, and again, I'm not... I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not saying anything. I just, oh, I think he is. <laughs> no, I, I'm not. I'm just laughing. I'm just laughing because, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. pretty good stuff. I want to uh, I'll go ahead and give a shout-out, too, since you did some uh, emails. I'll give uh, Mike Williams. He got a hold of me on Facebook. We were kind of chatting back and forth, and uh, he asked a couple some advice, and I took some time and gave it to him. He kind of had some nice things to say and just uh, – Said that he's kind of doing this on his own, and he said my input as well as Rob and Lonnie's is proving invaluable to his progress and this and that. And just he was, went into some of his progress he's made in this and that. And just wanted to give big thanks to you guys and and, and me, which I thought was pretty cool. Very cool, awesome. <clears throat> yeah. Hey guys, here it is. It's Gar- Garner and colleagues, journal Journal of Strength Conditioning Research, uh, 2011 October. Is the, I'll jump right to the bottom. These data demonstrate that although cortisol continued to increase in the no mouthpiece session. There was a significant decrease in cortisol in the uh, no mouthpiece condition ten minutes post exercise. Yeah, so you know, but the thing is, is this thing apparently is retailing? I think in the states for twenty nine ninety nine. My whole thing, you know, Jay Cutler, Mister Olympia, freaking Trump in this thing. My my point is, come on, man, a buck ninety nine tops. Well, and let's face it, I mean, they took, if this is the study, this is the only one that I found uh, right off the bat, but they took a, a 28 uh, D1 football players, they had them exercise for an hour, and, you know, it says the results revealed a significant difference in cortisol levels with the use of the mouthpiece um, at 10 minutes post-exercise. But, again, you know, whether or not that's going to make you huge or not, I mean, bodybuilders, let's face it, have experimented over the years, even with cortisol, very potent blo- cortisol blocker drugs, and you don't get the kinds of, you know, extreme muscle hypertrophy that you would get with, uh, you know, the flip side of the coin by, you know, doping testosterone or, or something like that. So anyway, yeah, the effects would be mild, especially considering the, uh, <laughs> what the gentleman was pointing out about yeah. limitless flow of vitamin G. <laughs> you know what? If that company hears this and they want to send us some samples, I absolutely 100% will utilize this thing. Um, 100% for a course of several weeks. Um, we'll have to get your cortisol tested, though. Well, yeah, but I'll also say, you know, if I actually notice any sort of difference in performance or anything like that. or well, You could test cortisol with a salivary sample. We could get yeah. uh, one of these online groups, you know, spit in a test tube, and, and if they want to pay for it, obviously we're not going to yeah. be paying for our own analyses there. But Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, hey, man, prove us wrong. Send us, free, send us free stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it, like we were talking about before we hit the record button, the, the bottom line is whether you're holding up a bottle of amino acids or a, a mouthpiece or a, whatever it is, you know, the the guy on the cover of the magazine, you know, that's not why he's jacked. <laughs> it's, it's simply not why he's jacked. Anyway. 
Um, I had a little bit of news as well. Um, one of the things that I want to mention first is um, we're going to do an iTunes uh, voter drive. We do have a little ad mid-episode that sort of reminds everybody, uh, you know, go vote for us. But I, I notice we have only about 75 iTunes reviews, and they're very good. And uh, it, it's very flattering, and, you know, uh, we have a lot of gratitude when we read those things. But here's what I'd like to do. If you can get five people to vote on iTunes, just vote their mind. Listen to an episode and vote their mind. I'm not asking to falsely in, in elevate this in any way. Um, you can email Fortress or me through the website, through uh, ironradio.org, and I will send you a gift. Honor system, literally. I, I have that much faith in the, uh, the Iron Army there, in the Iron Brotherhood. So five votes, legitimate votes. Email us and say, yep, I got them, guys. Did you see? I, I, I could go check. Of course, I can't go trace it back to you, and hence the honor system. But I'd like to do that iTunes Drive. I, I've noticed a couple of the podcasts that I consider, frankly, not of our caliber with guests and, and production yeah, So two value. things. So two things. A, and they have more than we do, and that's what I can't, I can't stand. So. A, yeah, I was going to say, A, <laughs> the prize won't be our used mouthpieces. <laughs> unless you unless you request that, <laughs> it's, uh, right? You know. Or Phil's beard? Yeah. And two, yeah, we just want to destroy everybody else. So, right, we're so competitive. Help, help us, help us push towards dominance. And if you leave anything less than a stellar comment, then go ahead and leave your address and phone number. No, please. no, it's got to be fair. <laughs> exact, exact location. <laughs> no, we can't have Phil and Fortress show up at the door. You know. With crossed arms and, you know, a pissed off attitude. That's not going to be good. Okay. Um, something else that I wanted to touch on. I was just surfing around on the web the other day. I don't know what I was looking for. And I stumbled across a thread. You know, here we go. We've talked about bodybuilding threads before and how off they get. This is on bodybuilding.com. And the thread was almost entirely just so off base and so confused. Uh, I couldn't stand it, and, you know, I had to do something about it, at least for my own edification. I didn't make any comments or anything, but they were asking how much do you have to eat to build a pound of muscle. And we've talked about this on here before, and usually I quote the Mill Williams Sports Nutrition book. He says it's somewhere between, like, 2,300 and 3,500 calories to build a pound of muscle. And he gives a range on purpose because of genetic differences, but I wanted to clear the air. Okay, so I actually sat down with two students and we calculated it two ways. One was based on a paper just from last year by Hall about how much ATP it takes to knit together one amino acid with another. And we did the math all the way up to whole proteins and tissues and this and that. Um, and we actually calculated the biochemical cost of synthesizing a pound of muscle. Now, on, on the Internet, they were completely hopeless. They were like, oh, there's this many grams of protein at four calories per gram. And I'm thinking, oh, guys, no, you're not eating it. It's, it's not how much pro, you know, energy is in that muscle. It's how much did it take to build it. Uh, so anyway, a lot of hopeless confusion there. But if you do the math with ATP, uh, or there was another way, too. There was a very famous Canadian researcher, Claude Bouchard, and he did some identical twin studies where he overfed 1,000 calories a day for weeks and weeks. It was really interesting. And he saw that roughly a third ended up as lean tissue. Uh, so that's very interesting to me because I've seen 13% before. Now I'm seeing up to 33% of a 1,000-calorie surplus gets laid down as lean mass. Now that's very interesting. 
Um, but anyway, the point being is when you do the math, whether it's by biochemical means or, you know, the, the Claude Bouchard and his twin feeding studies of the 1,000-calorie surplus, 2,300 to 2,650 surplus calories a day to build that pound of muscle. I just wanted to get that out there in case of any of our listeners, you know, were curious. You could go actually look up those papers and those authors and not be completely cluelessly, you know, poking around in the dark like I saw in that thread. It was sad. So. In that one-third study, were those trained individuals or training individuals? Well, that's what's so fascinating. No. Oh, okay. Crap. Yeah. Really? No. Yeah. They were healthy, young males, but that's uh, it. Wow. Um, uh. So, yeah, and that's what I'm saying, too. So, I don't know. You, you know, you do that with a power lifter or a bodybuilder. Yeah. You've got to think that it would be... It, again, genetics are huge. They, they, the reason they use twins is to take the genetics out of that, right? One twin yeah. was overfed and the other one was not. Yeah. Um, because they said the differences between people of different genetic makeups is huge. Yeah. So, and again, that's why the range, you know, existing like it is. But, uh, yeah, imagine a powerlifter, a bodybuilder. I could, I, yeah. you gotta think that they're probably putting, they may be putting on like a 60 40 is, yeah. for, you know, leaning toward muscle or maybe 70 30. You know, or, you know, who knows? Uh, but to me, it's, it's pretty strong evidence that calories go into this. Uh, so many people, including, um, I think, uh, some of the people in the sports nutrition scientific community, they focus so heavily on whey protein and leucine and things like that. Well, those are good triggers and building blocks. But you can't forget that it takes ATP, it takes calories to knit together the muscle. You know, yeah. it's a general concept of physics, right? When you build something, it requires energy. Um, it's like having a bunch of bricks and no mortar and workers to put them in. Well, yeah, <laughs> and no gas in their equipment. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't know. Anyway, so there it is. That's how many calories to build a pound of muscle. Figured it out by hand, and people can go look at those references. Uh, next up, this is going to set up our topic of the day. Um, our topic of the day is basically two ways to get huge. Uh, there's two basic premises here, and I'll just spill it now before I even read this this paper. Um, one is getting very strong and using that strength to build muscle mass. So is it better to get strong as on the road to hugeness, or is it better just to use a bunch of intensity techniques and things like that in the gym and be what I call a tissue assassin and, you know, get muscles really sore with bodybuilding movements and, you know, not so much on the powerlifting side, um, you know, is it better to, to be a tissue assassin instead of going the strength route first? And now, this is a paper that I wanted to bring up. And again, I, I'll quote some papers from the past couple of decades and we'll get everybody's input. But this is a, a paper from Nick Bird, who we had on the show a couple of months ago. And he works up there at McMaster University uh, in the Toronto area, uh, Hamilton there. It's... um a real hotbed for this kind of stuff. I mean, Marty Gabala is there, and Stu Phillips is sort of the senior guy in, in the lab there. But this is the Journal of Physiology, January 2012. I mean, it is spanking new. And now you guys might find this interesting, and this is almost an argument toward the bodybuilding-style training as opposed to pure strength. It's called Muscle Time Under Tension during resistance exercise, stimulates differential muscle protein subfractional synthetic responses in men. So time under tension as the way to get big. I think this is very interesting. We aim to determine if the time that muscle is under loaded tension during low-intensity resistance exercise affects the synthesis of specific muscle protein fractions or anabolic signaling. 
So they took eight guys, and again, don't think that's a low number. This is very involved research. Um, and they had them do six-second contractions to failure, which was the slow time under tension group, or a work-matched uh, exercise bout with one-second contractions. So same amount of total work, but you know, one was done very slow for much more time under tension. And then just to make sure they did everything right, they gave them 20 grams of whey protein immediately after exercise and again 24 hours later. So here's the, the deal. Myofibrillar protein synthetic rate, so the actual, you know, actin and myosin, you know, muscle myofibrils, uh, was higher in the slow condition versus control after 24 to 30 hours of recovery. And, uh, and it was, co- it correlated with certain markers of biochemistry. Um, Exercise-induced rates of mitochondrial and sarcoplasmic protein synthesis were elevated by 114% and 77% respectively above rest uh, at zero to six hours post-exercise only in the slow condition. So if I jump to the bottom, these data show that greater muscle time under tension increased the acute amplitude of both mitochondrial, so you know that would imply endurance proteins, and sarcoplasmic protein synthesis and also re- resulted in a robust but delayed stimulation of myofibril or protein synthesis 24 to 30 hours after resistance exercise. Mm-hmm. So when you read this and you you know you chew on it for a while you you think wow so this is only a 30% of one rep, one rep max load. This is a very light load. Is time under tension really the key to mass? You know, and it might almost suggest that maybe some of those intensity techniques and other things there was something uh, to that. So, you know what? I actually agree largely with all that from my experience, and certainly all the experience that's been, you know, given to me by you know guys like Bob Canny and stuff who've been around longer than all three of us combined. Yeah. You know that that time and again, guys like that have seen over the years, go dating back to like the fifties and so forth. <clears throat> you know, most successful bodybuilders certainly employ a, a, at least a respectable amount of, of their time with time under tension. Um, having said that, um, I also don't disagree with those who, because I, I, I'm a firm believer also, and I mean, even going back to my bodybuilding days, the whole you know power bodybuilding kind of philosophy, that the stronger you get, the more weight you can use. Mm-hmm. And then you can use that strength, like you were exactly. actually you led the whole thing off, Bonnie, to, to, to be fair, with this whole idea, that the more weight that you can use under tension, the greater the benefit. So, I mean, you're talking about 30% of one rep max and all this type of thing. But, I mean, a 30 rep, you know, 30%, if your max is 100 pounds, it's 30 pounds, you know. what's what's But what's 30% of 1,000 pounds, you know? Like, so that's why I always say to people when they, I, I, something I've said for many years to guys in the gym who are like, when I tell them, and you, you know, the need, the need to kind of train for strength at, cer- at at least at certain periods of time and so forth, they've always said, well, you know, I'm not a power lifter. And, and people have this confusion that when you say lift heavy or, or, or train for strength, they think it automatically means training for one rep max or mm-hmm. or always doing that, right? And, and my whole philosophy, my whole response has always been, you know, no, it's within, it's within whatever range you're kind of, you, you base your training in. And certainly, yeah, if you're, you're a purist kind of muscle guy bodybuilder, um, who's, you know, uh, uh, it's a distant second, the strength gain is a different se- um, di- second for priority. You know, I mean, that rep range might be anywhere between, you know, 6 and 15, or, you know, traditionally somewhere probably in there, 8 to 12, whatever it is. But if you can, I mean, keep the tension on the muscle with that much greater resistance, um, that seems to always be the key. 
Um, anyway, that's that's what I have to say about that. Yeah, and that, I, I agree. I mean, I think it's one thing I've preached to people a lot. I mean, there's a big difference. Let's say we got somebody that can bench 135 and somebody that can bench 405. If they employ those techniques, the, the guy that's four times stronger is going to get a lot more out of it. There you go. That's I guess <laughs> that's what I'm thinking, Phil. Right, exactly. You know? Because there's actually enough gross load yeah. at 30%. Yeah. To tug on those fibers and make a difference. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. If you're using 15-pound dumbbells and trying to do advanced time under tension techniques, you're just in the wrong place. <laughs> you know, I mean, take some time to get stronger first. And, you know, what I think it'd be interesting to see as well, I mean, sure, they're, they're, rapid, they're matching reps, but, you know, why not, you know, take these guys to momentarily mu- momentary muscular failure at the same loads? And let the one guys do quick reps for as many as they can. And let the other guys do slow reps for as long as they can. Uh, it'd be interesting to see the results then. Because, I mean, the time under tension might end up being close to the same. Well, they did. I think they did do this to uh, to uh, failure, to concentrate. Okay, failure. see, I thought you said they were matching reps, like well, six reps. They matched the total number of, they, they matched the total workload. Yes. Uh, they, so they tried to make time the only difference, I think. Basically. You know, well, I've always, uh, well. Because work, of course, you know, being force times distance. So they yeah, but what I'm saying distance, is, let's, right? yeah, let's yeah. say I took a 405-pound squat and I did them slow. I could probably only, I would get a limited number compared to if I moved them quickly. Right. Because I'm going to wear out quicker. Mm-hmm. Now, let's say I take the 405 and move slow and then I do do that for a month, and then I take the 405 and I move quickly, I'm going to end up with more reps moving quickly. It would be interesting to see the differences in results then. Oh, right. Yeah, so you're, you could do more total work. I could do to- more work. total work yeah, before forced, momentary muscular failure. Right, they forced an equal amount of work. Of work, even yeah. though the guys doing the quicker reps probably were not as fatigued. Good point, they, too. You yeah, said, they weren't as fatigued. Right. And you said squat, right? I mean, some, yeah. some things are just not going to gear themselves toward six second repetitions yeah you know what I, I mean can you imagine doing slow like negatives and then doing your own you know concentric positive back up in the squat yeah. i mean this is they did leg extensions yeah. you know um and i can see some compound movements maybe in the bench press and things but yeah stuff like the squat. oh i've tried to, i've tried a slow, oh. a slow set of 10 with 315 on the squat i it's 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 ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> it does seem ridiculous. It, uh, be, just just to something that a specific example that Phil just made. You know, I, I just did a quick calculation. If you're looking at thirty percent of it, like he was saying, a hundred thirty-five pound bench, that's forty pounds. You know, uh, about you know, and if you're doing, you know, he said four or five. You know, with that, it's like one hundred twenty-one pounds or something like that. So I mean, and you have to really like like Lonnie's saying, you have to really look at just just the stress on the body. I mean. Realistically, I mean, yeah. If you're if you're an average guy and your bench is 135 pounds and you're using one 130, saying yeah, but it's all about time and tension, dude, it's 40 pounds. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's it's how much them, tension? Right? Exactly. So, and, and this kind of lends itself to what I was saying as well, right? I mean, just the, just the you know the the advancements in your own strength capabilities over time is going to you know I mean think about it. If you're using 30 percent of 600. It's going to be at least somewhat substantial. Um, but I think that's why, um, you know, I think in a lot of ways, a lot of people um, experience the best of both worlds when they do things like, I hate to say it, but the whole West Side idea of, and not necessarily that you're moving the weight fast, but you do multiple, multiple sets of lower reps, but with, you know, substantially heavy weight. I think that really works for a lot of guys as far as thickening, thickening guys up and building density. 
Well, the it whole increases idea of like, time under tension in a 90% range. You know right, what I mean? Exactly. Uh, and what, yeah. That, that, yeah. At least you're getting the benefit of whatever your strength, um, mm-hmm. you know, capabilities at any given moment are. Actually, you know what, Rob? Uh, just to just because it's exactly what you just said fits with that 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 right. conference that I went to years ago in Finland, they actually suggested they looked at the best Olympic weightlifters across all countries through decades, and they said basically the best ones were the ones who spent the most time under ninety plus percent of their maximum yeah. loads. You know, yeah. so this kind of goes to what you're saying there. Right, and that's, that also lends itself to a, you know, we're talking about specifically muscle building here, but I've always said that, you know, to lift heavy, you have to lift heavy. And people kind of, on the outset, people who aren't really well, well versed in weight training say, well, duh, of course. But it really is true. I mean, and, and Phil actually kind of really kind of got through to me with the deadlift thing a few years ago when we were talking and, you know, it was kind of an epiphany for me, the whole idea that he was like, you know, if you want to deadlift a lot of weight, you got to lift a lot of weight, a lot of weight. You know, and you have to get over that hump of, oh, well, this is heavy when it's really not that heavy. That, that whole idea that, you know, you have to really get used to being under heavyweight a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly, yeah, yeah like back to our main, you know, the, the subject matter, what we're talking about today. You know, it, it's it really needs to be said, yeah. So these guys who go, yeah, well, I'm not a power lifter, so I don't really care about strength. I've always found that to be just weak and cowardly and... Yeah. Missing a lot of the point of what it means to be big and muscular, you know? Yeah. Well, now, I know I, what I want to bring up after break in, in a couple minutes here is there are lots of ways that those guys, they're not all just twinks, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of ways those guys can get very intense. We'll talk about different intensity techniques. Uh, and I scribbled a few down. I know, Rob, you and Phil can come up with a couple, too. Some of them were promulgated as weeder principles in the past, you know, when they really were never his. But um, there's a lot of things that those guys do. They're not all just, you know, pump monkeys and balloon animals either, you know. Yeah, but I also find a lot of guys who respond best to that kind of training are guys who are using a lot of supplements, if you get my drift. Yeah. You know, um, because as I've said in shows past, it seems to be that if you have the genetics and the genetic... Um, a favorable genetic response, um, receptor response, or whatever it is to, to 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 those types of drugs and chemicals, that all you need is a stimulus. It could yeah. be, and you know, and that that's where I think again the very the very nature of so many champions as training styles vary so much, is because you know at some level they're responding so well to the stuff that they're using. They're using so much of it that at that point it almost I don't like to say it doesn't matter, but it almost doesn't matter. You know? Every time you say that, Rob, I think about your story about Paul Delette and just, you know, having like one plate doing pushdowns for his, you know, Christmas ham size triceps. No, and I've seen you that know? multiple times. Of course, he's probably the most, you know, the preeminent example I could give just because of his, just how big he got doing this type of training. But I mean, yeah, it's it's, it's absolutely true. I mean. You know, I don't think there's any natural bodybuilder out there or any natural guy who's just interested in putting a lot of lean muscle on that's really going to, you know, benefit that much from um, a not strength-based um, yeah. weight training program. I really don't. I, I really truly believe that. I think. I think the domain again, the domain of large, large men training relatively light and weakly is is the domain of guys who are who are willing to not only use a fair amount of chemical and hormonal, you know, uh, supplements, but also people who respond well to it. So, well, I think that's that's largely evidenced too by the the the, the, the bodybuilders of 
the olden days, you know, or yesteryear, I guess. They were they were strong dudes as well as built. Okay. Yeah. You know, and this is before there was so much chemical enhancement. Yeah. You know. I mean um, guys I mean guys like Frank Zane, who now is considered like a tiny tit comparatively, yeah. um I would venture to say that at his strongest, he could probably hang if you could transport him at his strongest back in the like, whatever mid late seventies. He would probably hang strength wise with guys that today would outweigh him by fifty or sixty pounds. Yeah, um, which speaks to what you're saying, That's Phil, about the whole, the whole idea. And, and again, this is a guy that was considered who was even considered back then to be to be one of the more aesthetic guys and you know yeah. less massive type of guys mm-hmm. but those guys still i mean and again you look at how they trained maybe maybe it was just the you know cuz guys talk a lot to be able you know the, the the choices that are available to you as far as your exercise selection and the and certainly the the implements and the machines that are available to to you know to do those things um, back then, it was so much more basic right you had a squat yeah. rack you had a bench you had a dumbbell rack and the machines were pretty much you know uh Limited to things like, you know, a cable pull down or a, you know, yeah. some, or a really kind of half-assed archaic, you know, like leg curl machine. Yeah. Um, so they were forced to do those things. And, and, and again, there was a, there was a pride that came from that training like that anyway. So even when you had a, a guy like a Frank Zane, who was even at the time considered to be kind of more of a streamlined kind of guy, mm-hmm. they were still, again, I mean, his size, I think the biggest he ever competed on the Mr. Olympia stage was like, what, 190 or something? Yeah. You know, and I mean, but again, I think, I think if you could transport him today, to today's time, I think he would. He could hang pretty well. With probably. Some yeah, I know what you're because of the old yeah. school work ethic and the, yeah. the types of. I mean, they were moving iron. There weren't a yes. hundred different kinds of uh, machines. Sure, they had pulley mm-hmm. rows and that sort of thing, but yeah, they, it was that old school. Like I told you, I, I saw that very rare picture of the dude doing. He was doing low rack pulls, and his back was really thick. Mm-hmm. I mean, now. Not like a, a modern pro bodybuilder, obviously, but and I think he had like I don't know, um, you know, he had four or five plates on a side, you know, doing that, and you know, so that's how they got big. Yeah. Um, oh, now let me share a little bit of uh, science here, one or two uh, points, points of view before we go to break, because when we come back from break, I just want to talk about intensity techniques because there are several, uh, you know, in other words, things that you could do to make lifting hard on yourself without necessarily doing powerlifting moves. Um, but to the science, one point that I think supports Phil is, uh, gosh, several years ago now the American College of Sports Medicine did a, a review on progression models in resistance training. And, you know, Phil, your point about, you know, 30% uh, for a beginner, like a twink, is not going to be enough actual tension on the muscle. So it's time under tension, but what kind of tension? And I think the ACSM position paper, which is a big lit review, sort of backs you up on that because they concluded that you had to have about an 85% of your one rep max load. So, you know, an 85% intensity uh, to really progress in strength and presumably strength in size if you're intermediate or beyond. So, and again, and that almost harkens back to what you were saying, Rob, about how the West Side approach is trying to stay in that fairly high range for multiple, multiple sets. You know, so then you get a fairly high intensity and total amount of work. Yeah, well, you know? well, their whole, well, actually, in the way that they structure it, it's usually like you know, forty-five to fifty-five percent, kind of a thing when they're doing that. But they're but they're using that for acceleration and like you know, 
uh, nervous system efficiency. Oh, yeah, so but far. then on their max effort days, you know, they're looking exactly. at so many sets in that 90% up range. Or exactly. exactly. That's, that was my understanding. Right? And there's yeah. so many, basically what all this says, there's so many different ways to skin the cat. You just got to have to kind of know what, what's available yeah. to you and what's best for whatever. I mean, if you're, I mean, it's been said by many guys, you know, like a Paul Dillette type guys. It's like, you know, well, if I can get the same kind of size from, you know, and not putting my life at danger, standing under a 600 pound squat bar, then why wouldn't I? And certainly there's some logic to that. Well, that's not the fun though. Well, there, absolutely, but some people, <laughs> some people don't think it's fun. Now, I, yeah. I don't get it, and I know you don't get it, but you know, if you look at a guy like Vince Taylor, you know, a very, very successful former retired professional bodybuilder, I mean, the guy was notorious for doing everything basically cables and light, light as hell. And look at the guy. But he kind of, again, he kind of is an example of the kind of guy that I'm saying that respond well to whatever he was doing. And the stimulus that he was doing was kind of irrelevant how he was doing it. So you kind of got to know where you are, um, both from a, you know, uh, your, 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 um, experience, what type of, you know, genetic response you have and, and what kind of supplementation you're doing, you know, um, and how that was working out for you. Because again, you can't just, Say, well, this is the right way to do it because this is how so and so does it. I mean, which is good for what you're saying, Lonnie, about that study that was done when you were talking about earlier about the whole calorie thing and stuff about trying to take, you know, two, two twins to kind of as best as possible to, you know, eliminate the whole difference in, in you know, genetics, DNA kind of thing. So, yeah. um, but yeah, interesting. Well, I'll tell you, um, let's go ahead to break. Uh, and like I said, when we come back, I, I want to touch on a couple of, uh, uh, books and names that people might be interested in when they start wrestling with this sort of topic. And uh, we'll talk about intensity techniques. Be right back. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow... Uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Welcome back, listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry and Rob Fortney and Big Phil Stevens. And we are talking about uh, two ways to get huge. Essentially, uh, I think when people start off, they're often presented with two issues. One is, do I directly build mass with a bunch of different intensity techniques, and we're going to touch on a whole bunch of them that were popular in magazines over the past few decades, or do I just basically power lift and just try to get brutally strong, and that's going to make me big by definition? Well, 
the, one of the reasons that I thought this was interesting, because I've taught, I've kind of debated this to myself over the years is I remember Chad Waterbury, who does a lot of writing on T-Mag, uh, T-Nation, uh, I, he always struck me as a kind of guy who where he just wanted to get strong in order to get big. But I was always, frankly, sort of on the flip side. I was always the kind of person who liked to do lots of negatives and get just tremendous muscle soreness. And, and I was more on the tissue assassin side of things. I thought about the muscle tissue and not so much about neuromuscular performance, you know, per se. Now, if you look at some of the old science that goes all the way back to the 70s, you know, guys like Bill Gonier or... Actually, here's a quote from a paper by Prince and colleagues, 1976, but I wanted to just read this. The title is called Human Muscle Fiber Types in Powerlifters, Distance Runners, and Untrained Subjects. So this was one of the very first studies that said, hey, you know, these guys who lift weights, they have a different kind of muscle tissue. Uh, and I'll just read you a quick quote. The percentage of slow oxidative fibers, and of course those are smaller endurance type. Uh, varied from about 20 to 60 percent across all three groups with a mean of 40.5 percent slow twitch, you know, oxidative. In the, uh, in the control group, approximately 75 percent of the fibers were oxidative. Uh, again, a combination of very slow endurance type and more medium type fibers. The major characteristics of the lifters it talks about was a hypertrophy of fast oxidative glycolytic fibers, and just fast glycolytic fibers. So what they're saying there is mid-range to pure explosion fibers in the lifters. Yeah. You see a lot more of that. The distance runners had a very high percentage of the oxidative endurance fibers and very few fast glycolytic fibers. Mm -hmm. Now, why am I talking about all these fiber types and everything? Well, one is bodybuilders, if you look at some of this older work from the 70s and 80s, actually had quite a few of the intermediate fast oxidative glycolytic fibers. They had FOG fibers. They weren't purely fast twitch. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of plays a role in how a lot of the textbooks, you guys remember how they used to be, they'd say for bodybuilding purposes, you, you should do 8 to 12 reps. And for powerlifting, you should do like 1 to 3 or 1 to 5 reps. You remember all the, how those books mm -hmm. used to be. Yeah. Um, and I think that might have been partly based on some of the work by guys like Prince et al. here, or Bill Gonier, or some of those guys. There was some work from uh, Ohio University done back then. Uh, you know, the, the bodybuilders, they actually had quite a bit of these intermediate-type fibers, too. They weren't just purely explosive. Yeah. Um, now, this, this particular study looked at even powerlifters and found a, a fair proportion of the intermediate fibers. Uh, but I think the interesting thing here is when you look at a picture in a book, and I'm going to recommend Pavel Comey. He wrote a book for the International Olympic Committee years ago, a couple different editions, and Comey, K-O-M-I, um, he was really, in some of the chapters there, they were showing pictures of, of, of motor units, you know, of the nerve and the muscle fibers that touch. And the little endurance fibers, they, you know, they had little tiny wires. You know, the, the nerve was this wimpy little thing, and, you know, the, the, the slow oxidative fibers, the endurance fibers that it touched were little. And then there's the intermediate ones, and then the fast glycolytic fibers you know, dump huge amounts of electricity down them in comparison. You know, they're bigger. The muscle fibers they touch are bigger. And, yeah. you know, and I think that's sort of an argument for some aspect of power lifting, you know, pure power. I mean, if you want to affect the biggest motor units, pile on the weight, you know, and do explosion and heavy yeah. weight and, and those kinds of things. 
But again, it, it sort of clouds the issue when you hear that bodybuilders ha- actually have a lot of intermediate, you know, FOG yeah. fibers, and they're not purely explosive glycolytic type. Well, you know, it's been so. I remember hear, hearing it said that you know they were saying why, why is it that. You know, you know, you get world champion powerlifters that could be, you know, like a, a, f- a fraction of the size of maybe, you know, a heavyweight professional bodybuilder. Yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah. they, they can, exp- you know, they, they can express so much more strength lifted. And you know, my understanding of how that is obviously is that the bodybuilder has got the engine, but he's never developed the ner- He's never developed the, the fuel injection system, and that's the analogy I always yeah. use, right? They've they've got all this kind of bucket loads of muscle they've got tons of you know an inherent engine engine i like it yeah but they've just never you know really you know honed down and worked worked the the, the, you know the fuel injection system the nervous system and that's why i think you sit when you see a lot of guys who are very large who maybe haven't done that they can get away with moving quite a lot of weights simply because they have so much engine but if you actually put them specifically into something at that point where it was actually focusing more on the nervous and they actually brought that up to, to, to par with the engine size, you know, I mean, it would be amazing what they could lift. Yeah. And that's my, what my whole trans, transition from bodybuilding to being a powerlifter has been about. And Lonnie, you know this because I've discussed with you this many times with you. When I kind of finally made the switch, I had an overabundance of muscle strength. But my my ability to generate power was, you know, in rel- relative terms, was lagging, and it's 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 through you know concerted um, effort to kind of try and address that, you know, lack of whatever it was that that I think has brought me back up to where where I should be, you know, when you kind of bring those two things up to par, and I think this kind of again is is very pertinent to what we're talking about because again, I mean, although I do believe that pure strength training. Most of the time, develops a different physique than bodybuilding training, as it were. Um, I also believe that again, there has to be there has to be some sort of you know mingling of those two kind of philosophies yeah. for, for to maximize the bodybuilder's potential for to being as good physique physique wise as he can be. Well, I think it goes the same way with powerlifters, especially maybe not lower class ones, but people looking to move up in weight classes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like me right now, I, I'm looking to put on weight, so it's very much more. I'm doing a lot more, um, just time in the gym, time under tension, a lot more reps, a lot more assistance work, stuff like that. And I mean, it goes back to those studies. I mean, I think it's true. Of course, time under tension has a huge play in how much muscle tissue you, you build, how much hypertrophy is going on. Because I mean, you look at powerlifters in the off season; they're usually at their biggest and leanest. And then they, when they start moving more load, less reps, the time under tension goes down, the, the total, maybe even the total uh, workload mm-hmm. goes down, mm-hmm. but the, the percentage used is much higher. Yeah. They're smaller, they're not as lean, but they're stronger than ever. Um, well, I mean, I you know, remember also hearing Louis Simmons from Westside Barbell saying that, you know, it was hard for him, him to keep any of his lifters in any given weight class because mm-hmm. of the nature of their training, which... I think most of us will agree is kind of excessive if you're not, you know, enhanced by some sort of drug. Um, but the excessive nature of their their workload, he and his his quote was something to the effect of, "It's very difficult to keep any of my lifters in any specific weight class because they're always getting so much bigger and get moving into the next weight classes." So that again lends credence to what we're talking about. But it does, as- like you said, though, it also points out population specificity because. I've seen some powerlifters who have, you know, they, they're really surprisingly strong, and they're very oh, yeah. thin. 
Yes. You know, like some of the guys in the back room at Pets Gym there, you know what I mean? Some of those guys, you know, I watch them squat 405 for a couple reps. I'm like, whoa, really? So that that would almost suggest that, you know, you're able to develop quite a bit of strength and it uncouples from muscle mass at some point. But like I said, only up to a certain point, though, because then you've got to have a bigger engine. Like I'm glad you brought that up because I was just going to say what you're talking about is is only – pertinent to a certain point mm-hmm. um, because it's certainly it I is mean, pretty amazing I, though how far oh, they no, it, it's absolutely amazing i'm just saying that we all know the guys who you know bench like you know 600 pounds at 165 pound body weight and stuff but th- these are all guys that where there's all sorts of ex- you know um other factors involved like you know shirts and so forth that kind of aid that but if you're just talking about the base example of a lifter certainly what you're talking about is amazing yeah how far you can go with you know essentially so little engine Mm-hmm. You know, as we're talking, but you know, at some point that has to change, right? And you have to just add more engine. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, if I can yeah. add, uh, there there are several bodybuilding types of techniques to bodybuilding movements. You know, Phil, you might even call them accessory work. I don't know. I I, I consider meat and potatoes sometimes, but there are things that would really enhance hypertrophy, but they're really not their traditional power lifts, and they lend themselves to some of the intensity techniques that I'm going to list. But I mean, some things like seated pulley rows. That's not a wuss movement. You can put hundreds of pounds on there and really get your lats engaged or dumbbell presses, you know, bench press instead of barbell bench presses or military presses, leg presses. You know, some of these things you can really power weight on, pile the weight on, and it, it, they're just different movements. You know what I mean? No, I don't, not- think, I don't think kind of being the bridge between you and, and Phil kind of, you know, pr- I, I don't think anybody from either camp is going to, you know, kind of poo-poo on, on any of the exercises you're mentioning. No. Um, because, because they do all have, have their benefit. I mean, yeah, uh, you know, a powerlifter might not spend the majority of its time in, on a leg press. Yeah. But I don't think any, you know, powerlifter worth his salt as far as knowing anything about anything. It's going to, you know, come down on some guy who, who does engage in, you know, leg pressing, you know, properly. So. Right. Or heavy dumbbell work or whatever. Oh, exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. I, mean, like, I don't think any, I don't think any strong, you know, um, Strength athlete on the planet is ever <coughs> looked down upon any sort of like dumbbell pressing movements. I mean, right. no. ever. Like, I think it's just that that's just ridiculous, even assuming. Yeah, and just to put my my assistance work into context, I mean, pretty much anything but benching, squatting, and deadlifting is assistance. Work. That's what I thought. Right. You meant. It's, right. it's yeah. assisting my lifts that I have to do in competition. Exactly. Right. So yeah. it's just, and it really is just a, sh- a shift in psychology. Because yeah. Again, coming from a bodybuilding background myself, I can say absolutely, I know what Lonnie's talking about because those, yeah. those are just exercises. But you know, in the last 10, 15 years, I've really learned to you know change the way I look at it. Right? To me, it's now it's those are accessory things to do. Doesn't mean that they're lesser. No, they serve their purpose. Yep. No, God, you know, no. Like, I mean, like, when I when I walk up and start doing barbell rows, I take that very seriously. I can't. I don't and consider and like that said, a, an accessory. Any, you know, I don't think any yeah. power lifter has ever not benefited from having a bigger bent row. No, you know, like no, for, yeah, of course. From, all sorts of standpoints, from injury prevention standpoints to performance standpoints mm-hmm. to balancing the musculature of the upper body standpoint, exactly. durability. Now, yeah. I, I was just going to say, let me run down this list here, and I know you've got a ton of them, both you guys. So these are some of the intensity techniques. If somebody's doing these other exercises, and you know whether you call them accessory or meat and potato, you know they're serious movements. Um, Negatives is one. I'm actually a big fan of negatives. I think they do increase time under tension, you know, because you sort of do a four count. They also engage those fast glycolytic fibers. Instead of using tons and tons of weight, they'll 
tend to uh, ignore what's called the size principle. I don't want to bore anybody with that, but they go right for the big fibers and they'll rotate among the big fibers, engage the big fibers very quickly. Um, and they cause obviously a lot of muscle soreness and damage, but they also cause satellite cell activation and, and growth. You know, Can I say great. something to that? Oh. You're talking about the, the, the negatives and so forth. Mm-hmm. Years ago, I mean, almost from the, the start of my training, I, I remember reading about, and I think it was Dr. Mauro de Pasquale who coined the phrase, or maybe it was, uh, no, maybe it was, uh, um, Fred Hatfield. I think it was Fred Hatfield, the guy mm-hmm. first got, you know, like, powerlifter. I think he used the phrase compensatory acceleration. And I have employed my own kind of, you know, take on compensator acceleration almost from the beginning. And that is how it, it was always described and how I've come to understand what it is, is you almost do a, um, under your own steam, you do a negative on the eccentric lowering, and then you explode very powerfully in the ex, in the concentric mm-hmm. positive. And there, in, in that way, you're kind of getting, I mean, to a lesser degree over, you know, specifically, but overall you're getting kind of the best of both worlds, right? You're doing kind of a slow negative, a lot of time under tension, and of course we all know about how, you know, much benefit there is on the, you know, the negative part of a, a oh, motion. Oh, how soreness inducing it is. Exactly. But you're also getting that really high sparked acceleration, you know, you know, in the concentric, which is, you know, um, you know, talking to the whole, like, you know, acceleration. Um, it's a good point, system. Bob. Yeah, well, I honestly. Yeah. Go ahead, Phil. I, just, I honestly think that lends itself to strength, too. I mean, For it's sure. one of the hardest things to teach. But if you look at any truly strong power lifter, they don't, they don't just fall into a squat and <laughs> bounce back Absolutely. up. Yeah. They are actively pulling themselves slowly down into a squat and firing back up. Almost like building with pressure. The presses. So, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I do believe in, in the negative portion of it as well. I mean, you're, you're getting tighter and tighter and tighter the whole way down. Well, I can say this. If you look at the science, a muscle is only going to get strong, of course, in the range of motion that you work at and in the type of contraction. So if all you do is eccentric, all you do is lowering movements, your concentric performance is probably going to suck, you know, or it it might be a little bit better. Now, I like uh, the neat thing about negatives, of course, is you can go above 100% of your one rep max. You know, you can lower more weight than you can hold steady, and you can hold steady more than you can actually push up concentrically. So you can really load a muscle and trash it. Um, but again, is that going to help you concentrically, you know, be a better power lifter, bench presser, squatter? No, probably not. not at least not a, not solely. You know, right. if all you do is the eccentric. Right. Right. Um, but let's look at some of this other list, Rob. Uh, pre-exhaust. That was your old boss's thing, wasn't it? Didn't yeah, Bob Robert, Kennedy come up with that? Yeah, Robert Kennedy um, always lays claim to that as something that he came up with and. Who am I to argue? <laughs> I mean, he's been around longer than I am. So. Can you just define it very quickly? Pre-exhaust is basically just doing a isolation movement, a uh, single joint movement for a body part before the meat and potatoes compound multi-joint movement. So, for instance, in the, the example that he always used to give is shoulders, right? Before you go do the, your military press, dumbbell, whatever you want to call it, before you do those that those types of movements... A pressing movement, you would start off doing um, side laterals, dumbbell laterals. And so, you know, a single okay, joint yeah. isolated thing to kind of like really pre-exhaust the deltoids. And then when it's completely, you know, they're kind of smashed, then you go and you do the multi-joint movement again, and then that's going to overload the muscle and force adaptation because now you're, you're, being, you're using also auxiliary muscles to help 
the deltoids push further past where it normally would have gone. Okay, just so that's almost thing. that's almost like another one on my list here, which is forced reps. Right, right. Right, or even right. cheat reps. Sure, right? yeah. Because all these things are going to try to increase time under tension, if you think about it, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. A few well, more reps. I mean, all of these things. All of these things are the, – the one thing that glues all these things together is they're all ways to extend the set. Mm-hmm. You know, in some manner. I mean, whether you're talking about a like a superset, you know, um, alternating between back and forth between two exercises, or you're going a giant set, which would be you know more than two, you know, three to infinity number of sets that you're doing in succession. You got you know five exercises, you run through them, and start again at the beginning. That'd be a giant set. Um, right. I mean, all each these... one hitting a muscle, the muscle group from a slightly different angle, but a bit basically working the same muscle group. Exactly. Right? You know, running the rack, quote unquote. Some people call it. You know, when you start. I was just like, thinking that, Rob. You know, yeah. 20, starting yeah. a twenty-pound dumbbell. You know, and going. You know, twenty, thirty, forty-five for whatever. Then coming all the way back down again. People, some people call it pyramiding. Um, you know, the strip sets. You know, you're doing triceps push downs with a stack, and you start it up with a hundred, and right, and I'm standing there, and Phil's doing it, and he yeah. can't do any more, so I, you know, he puts it down. I, I pull a pin, put it on eighty. He does as many as he can, put it down. Um, and you, you, of course, you can do that on you know barbell bench presses or whatever with people pulling plates off or leg presses. I mean, all these things. That, like you say, force reps where you're actually using a training partner or some other person to effectively you, you know act as you know that. Right, to remove part of the load. Right, I mean, these are all just ways to extend the set. So, yeah. And just push the muscle basically past where it would normally go if you just kept it, you know, within one one round. So, Phil, did you have a comment? No, I just said it's all you. Oh, right, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the guy does eight reps from the first one he didn't get it, and the guy grabs it, and at the end of the eighth rep, he says, yeah, it was all you, bro. Yeah. It was all you, bro. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. PR. (laughs) <laughs> well, so, so I, you know, it'd be fun to have a whole episode. Maybe one day we'll really talk about each one of these. But my point was, you know, these are lots of ways that bodybuilders get very intense without necessarily just focusing on, yeah. you know, moving more weight, right? There's, I, I suppose, an uncharitable powerlifter might look at that and be like, these are all excuses not to move more weight. But in fact, they can be very brutal, as you guys know. I mean. You know. Yeah, but I, I, like I said, it's it's. I think it all has to be in kind of in, in cahoots with one another. And I think you guys will totally agree with me on this, both from Phil's standpoint and from your standpoint, Lonnie. The whole the whole thing. They all have to kind of be in synergy with one another. I mean, which goes back to my point originally, saying that you know, thirty percent of you know, hundred pounds versus thirty percent of six hundred pounds is far different. So I mean, all these things. If even if the power lifter is saying, like you say, well, okay, you know, I've kind of tapped out, you know, my fuel injection system. I just need a bigger engine now. Mm-hmm, I mean, yeah. at that point, he's probably going to get a hell of a lot more benefit of all these kind of what it were considered, you know, advanced training, you know, or, or you know, Joe Weider used to always call them his, you know, the Joe Weider principles, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Exactly. Yeah. Joe Weider likes to think he invented everything, but you know, but you know, orange juice, I think he thinks he invented. But the point being is. These are all things that would benefit the powerlifter, too, if he decides at some point that he needs just a bigger engine, right? But, of course, he's going to, you know, if he, it, like, for instance, if he's, if he's running the rack, let's say he's using that principle, right? I mean, obviously, if he's starting with something because he's a very strong powerlifter and, you know, his top weight is 150-pound dumbbells, I mean, you know, when that time under tension that he's going to put as he's running the rack is going to be so much more punishing on his body than the guy who's running the rack and he can only start at 20, you know, a 30 pound dumbbell. I mean, once again, to go 29, 28, 27, 26, you know, it kind of gets stupid at some point. So obviously, again, 
I think this really does bolster the whole idea that, sure, all this stuff is great and everything, but at some point, somebody has to realize just the, the overall worth of being stronger, no matter what kind of your course of action you're taking. Well, I want to make two comments here before we wrap up. One is, uh, repeatedly, uh, you know, in this podcast over the years, we've talked about how, you know, 30% of one rep max for beginner may not even be enough to do very much. I mean, in, in yeah. Nick Bird's study, it did really turn on protein synthesis. Um, but one thing I just wanted to point out is, you know, where are the studies on really elite lifters? Because we've said this a hundred times, 30%, like if you have a thousand pound squat, that's like a 315 yeah. squat, you know, and you're going to do that 23, 25 times, you know, um, it's, it's brutal, you know, yeah. and, uh, but you know what I mean? But it's at the same time, you know what I'm saying is it's a different relationship and people aren't really studying that in, in the higher end guys where these sort of percentages break down. Yeah. Uh, no. and the and other I thing think, I, yeah, sorry. The other point I just wanted to make quickly was that. Uh, and, you know, Phil agrees with this. I mean, Phil's a big boy, and, you know, and you are. We're all beefy for our height. But the point being is, um, sometimes I think that engine building, the bodybuilding, hypertrophy training, is sometimes missing from classic strength coaching. Uh, I'll see such a focus on, uh, like, you know, we're talking about, like, uh, sports teams at the university. There's such a focus on agility training and injury prevention and this and that and plyometrics and this, that, and the other. And I'm like, you know, you guys are kind of thin, you know. Um, you could probably use some uh, some of these bodybuilding techniques like right. negatives or this or that. Again, would I do it in season? No, it's going to make you very weak and sore, you know. But in the off season, those these could be great techniques combined with the right sort of nutrition and calories and surplus and that sort of thing yeah. to put put a bigger engine on these kids, you know. Yeah. So I no, see, absolutely. I see that is missing sometimes. That's well, what and I think I think you, you you really see like I mean anybody who's really you know kind of part of gym culture, and of course we all are, and most of our listeners I assume are. Um, you really, and if you've been around long enough, you know, I'm talking like you know decades, you really do see that that kind of ebb and flow of of kind of fads, you know, of of how people approach kind of weight training and, and training that's done in weight training gyms. Um, and certainly, I think we've seen kind of like the. You know, through the late 80s, early 90s, you, you know, you saw kind of at that point, you saw the wave kind of coming up where, young, you know, young guys, everybody wanted to kind of do the traditional bodybuilding thing. And then it kind of kind of it ebbed and flowed. And now, you know, and then it came to the MMA, what I call the MMA era, where guys were so much more concerned with um, not doing that specifically and doing more things that you're talking about, Lonnie, right? You'd see guys come in the gym and, do, you know, kind of do a traditional resistance training exercise, then turn around and do plyometrics or you know, a wall jump or something like that, and, you know, agility work, as you say it, or box jumps, whatever it is, you know, and I think you just see the trend, and I think the whole thing is, is always what I say, that's finding balance between everything. I mean, It is a balance, because if you yeah. remember, we had talked back, uh, got a year ago in the winter time about the problem with a lot of sports is that top athletes, they don't all need to be hugely buff either. Yeah. Who is no. talking about that? Uh you know, he was talking about cradle to grave and all that, and we need to develop athletes early on and not just, you know, focus on bodybuilding type movements because bodybuilders aren't that athletic in a lot of instances, yeah. you know. Uh, but anyway, yeah, there's got to be a balance there. But, you know, when you look at it as, you know, listen, for the next eight weeks or 12 weeks, we're going to try to build a bigger engine. I definitely think there's a, there's a time for that in sport. Absolutely. You know? 
Well, of course. I mean, you know, if you if you want to be an elite strength athlete, a powerlifter, I mean, there's going to be a, a point. I mean, that's going to mean eventually, even if you are a lighter guy, that's going to mean eventually putting five, six, seven hundred pounds on your back. You know, even at the you know at the world world elite level. Um, you know, of course that varies with as far as your equipment use and that kind of thing. But the whole point is, eventually you're going to have to put substantial weight on your back. You know, or right. <laughs> hovering over. And at that point, like I say, I mean, you can only get so far maximizing just the you know the the, the fuel injection system. I mean, you're going to have to. So again, even for a power like a powerlifter or a, you know, I mean, certainly strength strongmen guys like that. Yeah. I mean, you're going to have to utilize all these things and understand each one at least to, at least the extent that you can employ it to a certain amount of you know success and understand where where it fits into your the overall scheme of what it is that you're doing that so yeah your goal, right i think to, you know to summarize this really cuz i know we're pretty much out of time is yeah. is you've got to have you you could take a strength approach and then you could build a bigger engine but the really the best way to do this and i know some people are going to be genetically geared toward one versus the other a little bit more um sure, but yeah. Yeah, you've got to find uh, a time to employ both of these approaches, and you're going to be better off in the long run. Yeah, and and just to finish off on my end, that's why I always said, because, again, I come from the vantage point of having done both sides, right? So I'm not on the side of either one. I love both. I love bodybuilding, and I love powerlifting. And I hate when powerlifters rip on bodybuilders and bodybuilders rip. I hate that because I feel like they're both both my friends, right? So. And I always say the best powerlifters are usually guys who understand the, the benefits of bodybuilding types training. And the best bodybuilders are the guys who understand the benefits of powerlifting type training. And to rip on one or the other is, is just stupid. I mean, it, it really yeah, does. Too just, much in common. There's, exactly. Because you have to remember, this all, this all stuff all started without separation. You know, right. Physique, I think that's athletes, all, you know, we're very vintage in our outlook. We, well, we yeah, because physique yeah. athletes were lifters. Like Phil was saying earlier, and lifters were physique athletes. I mean, think about how it all started. They'd lift something, stand there, pose a little bit, lift something. I mean, it was it was the same thing, you know? Big guys were strong, and strong guys were big. I mean, it, it was just the way it was. And because I think, well, yeah, we do have an old-school approach here, I, you know, but I'd like to see that really come back to the fore because I hate, I, know, I understand specificity, but it really bugs me when people trash on other, basically, you know, cousin sports of what they're doing. Don't trash on something else. Take from it what benefits you, and everything has its own benefit. Employ it with what it is that you do, and you'll reap the benefit. I'm telling you right now, like you said, Lonnie, whether or not you have to improve your fuel injection system, whether or not you just need more, more engine, whatever it is, it, you know, everything can be a benefit. You just have to understand what it is and how you can use it. Gym culture. All right. Sounds good, guys. Good show. All right, guys. Next week. Right on. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. Hey, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry, and I'm just bringing you a sneak peek only for Iron Radio listeners at this point. If you Google CRC Press, 
Lowery, L-O-W-E-R-Y, and Protein. You can be some of the first people on the planet to see this book. It's specifically for strength athletes. Everything on the safety of high-protein diets, the efficacy, the dosing, the types, practical applications, and case studies. This is a textbook. It's not what I would call an industry book. This is not pseudoscience. This is the state-of-the-art science and if someone wants to critique you on your extra protein intake, this will be something you can hold up and say, this is what the liter literature says about stressed kidneys or bone loss or gout or dehydration or increased muscle mass over time or leanness or what types are best. This is the ultimate source in one place. Little disclosure here, I do make a single digit percentage of royalties on this book. It's such a low amount, however, obviously I've done it for that purpose. I did it because, like you, I want to have something I can hold up in one place that's modern literature instead of what a, perhaps a health educator might tell you about the benefits and the potential concerns, if there are any, on ample protein diets specific to a population like ours. Thank you. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.